Thanks for listening to the teaching podcast of Bridgepoint Church. Stay tuned after the podcast for a short message, but for now, let's jump right in. Well, good morning. How's everybody feeling? Man, I don't know about you. I'm loving the weather. It's cool enough. It feels good. Not too cold. You can still keep the sandals on. And so we're like right in the sweet spot right now. And I hope you've had a great weekend so far. Uh, before we jump in, a couple things I want to make you aware of. The first one is this, that in just a couple of weeks on Sunday, October 30th, in our Bridge Kids area during both services, we're having a fall festival. And so we're excited for our kids to be able to have just a fun week. They're going to um, be able to have some games, some other stuff going on. And one simple way that you can help us make this the best fall festival ever is the next time you're out picking up Halloween candy, if you just pick up an extra bag and you can drop that off at the Bridge Kids check-in desk sometime between now and October 30th, that would be greatly appreciated. Um, By the way, I don't know how it is in your house. Uh, My wife and I went to Costco this week and I'm a big believer. I want to give out full-size candy bars on Halloween. Um, I will bribe the neighbor's kids to be friends, so I'm not above that. Um, But she didn't want to spend that much money, so we got like, we compromised. We got one thing of full-size candy bars, one bag of candy. Um, So over the next few weeks, I'll have to go back without my wife to buy more full-size candy bars. Um, So anyway, as you guys are out shopping, you'll pick up an extra bag. That would be great. Uh, Second thing I want to make you aware of is that less than two weeks from today on October 22nd is our annual serve day. And that's where all of our life groups, we pick a serve project in the community. So some people are partnering with local organizations. Some people are helping out directly with people who are in need. And so we'll all meet here on Saturday morning at nine. We'll have a short time of worship and celebration. And then we're going to go out and make a difference in our community. And we actually have 18 different life groups this semester. And so I can't wait to see um, what we're going to do. But if you're not in a life group, you can still participate. You just show up that morning at 9 a.m. We'll have all the different groups listed. You can find out which project best fits with you. And so I just want to encourage you guys, keep that on your radar. We always plan it on George's bye week. So you have no excuse for saying, hey, I can't be there that week. And so hope to see you guys there on October 22nd. Now, this morning, we're going to continue on in our series called Renew, where we're looking at the story the Bible is telling. And the reason that this is so important is because I think for a lot of people maybe who grew up in church and who are familiar, if you were to ask, what is the story the Bible is telling? They'll say something like this. Well, the Bible tells us that everyone is sinful and is separated from God. So God sent his son Jesus to die on the cross for our sins. And whoever believes in Jesus will get eternal life and get to go to heaven when they die. Now, there's a lot in that that is true, but to say that that is the whole story the Bible is telling is really to mischaracterize the story that we find in Scripture. Because the story the Bible is telling is something so much greater and so much bigger, and we think that the Bible is all about how Jesus forgave my sins so I could go to heaven, it really puts a focus on me right? Like Jesus died for my sins so that I could have my personal relationship and go to heaven when I die. But the reality is that the story is so much greater than that. And as I was trying to think of a new way to illustrate that, um, I came across a bad movie summaries. Have you guys ever seen these before? I wanted to share some of my favorites with you. I think the first one is Lord of the Rings. Um, The bad movie summary is that um, a group of guys spends nine hours to return jewelry. Um, so if you're familiar with the plot line, you know, the long movies have to return. All right. I thought it was funny. Maybe not. Next one. 
Titanic, everyone participates in the ice bucket challenge. Uh, that was a little morbid, so I don't know how that one was going to go over this morning. Uh, Beauty and the Beast, Stockholm Syndrome works. Um, so, and then my personal favorite, The Empire Strikes Back, is Talking Frog convinces son to kill his father. Uh, so if you're familiar with the movie, it's, it's not necessarily wrong, but it is a mischaracterization of the story of that movie. And when we make the Bible all about how Jesus died for my personal sin so I could go to heaven, it's kind of one of those bad movie summaries because the story the Bible is telling is so much greater than that. In fact, what we said is the Bible is not so much how God wants to get me to heaven, but how God wants to bring heaven to earth. And so is there an eternal component of that? Like, absolutely. But really, God is inviting me into something bigger that he is doing. And so to, to kind of walk through the story of the Bible, we've decided to split it up into six different acts or movements, and we've just been walking each week through one of these acts. And I know that a lot of people have questions, and so over the course of the series, we have a number on the screen. You can text your questions into that number, and we'll have time for those at the end of each service. We're also, Mr. Keith will have the microphone today, and so at the end, um, I'll give you an opportunity to just raise your hand and ask a question. And I know that you guys have questions, because nobody raised their hand in service, but you all come up to me in the lobby with your questions, which is fine, which is fine. But I encourage you guys, this, we can ask questions in this room just as much as we can in the lobby. And so feel free to text in those questions. We're going to have a whole week of Q&A at the end of this series as well. I just kind of want to recap where we've been. We started in this series talking about Act 1, which was creation. Let's do a little pop quiz time. All right, when God created the world, he created it to be his, anybody? Starts with a T. Temple? There we go. I don't know who said it. You get a gold star for today. God created the world to be his temple. And in a temple, um, whatever God you're building that temple to, inside you get a picture of the world the way that God would want it to be. And so if all of creation was designed to be God's temple, then he created the world to be exactly as he wanted it to be. And the word that he uses over and over and over again is it was good. It was very good. It was teeming with life and abundance and everything was just the way God wanted it to be. He took all of this chaos and brought order. He brought all of this, this confusion and he brought beauty. He made a good world to be his temple. Now, in a temple, you need people to work in the temple. What are those people called? Priests, right? And so the priests we see in Genesis 1 and 2 are Adam and Eve, that humanity was created to be priests who work in the temple on God's behalf. And so we actually said the words that it uses in Genesis 2 is to work and to watch, so you want to care for creation, but you also want to work to continue to bring order out of chaos and beauty out of disorder and light out of darkness. In other words, uh, humanity's design was to bring about the goodness and flourishing of all people and all creation and to reflect God's glory into the world. That's what it means to be made in the image of God. To be made in the image of God doesn't mean we look like God. The image of God is, it's a vocation, it's a, a calling, it's a job that we have. Are we tracking so far? Yes, no, maybe? All right. Act 2, last week, we talked about the fall. And this is where kind of sin enters into the equation. Because we're introduced to a spiritual being that is rebelling against God. 
And the spiritual being, this serpent, tries to get Adam and Eve to do the same thing. Now, what the, the whole conversation is about is not just trying to get them to break some random rule that God has, but to, to try to convince Adam and Eve that instead of imaging God into the world, they said image the serpent, or even to image themselves. And that's exactly what Adam and Eve do. They decide we want to decide what's good and what's evil. We want our will and our glory to be reflected into the world. And what we saw is that all sin has its roots in idolatry. Like all of us are tempted to image something other than God into the world. It might be success. And so we spend our entire lives chasing the next promotion, the next paycheck, the next position. Some of us, what we, we reflect, um, we're, we're imaging love and acceptance. And so you spent your whole life bouncing from relationship to relationship. Or you find yourself constantly people-pleasing. You can never tell someone no because you really need their love and acceptance. Or sometimes we even image our own families back into the world. Right? Like our families take top priority. And you think, Matt, how could that be a bad thing? Listen, families are good and they are a gift from God. But anything that has a higher priority in our life than God is, is in the wrong order. We got our priorities out of whack and we're imaging the wrong thing into the world. And so what sin does is sin keeps us trapped to those things that we image. So we're looking for love and acceptance. And an addiction to pornography keeps us going back to that to find it. You know, we want to image success into the world. And so the sin is that we keep neglecting our family and our relationships so that we can find those things. See, we left off last week with the problem that we have. And the problem the Bible is addressing is not that, that we are bad people and God wants to make us good. Or that we're immoral people that need to be more moral. The problem is that we were created to image God and instead, we've been imaging all these other things. And because of sin, we've become enslaved to these things. The way the author of Romans puts it is that we've exchanged the image of God for the image of created things. Instead of imaging God in the world, we image other things. Are we tracking? Because the solution then to God's problem comes in Act 3, which is Israel. And it's important for us to understand, because a lot of times we want to jump straight from sin to Jesus and we miss the whole point of the Jewish scriptures. And so today, in the time we have left, I'm going to try to cover the entire story of the Old Testament in about 25 minutes. And so I'm going to have to talk even faster than I normally do. And so some of you, if you're taking notes, you know, maybe just listen to the podcast later or, or check it out on YouTube. But I want to kind of give us the whole arc of the Old Testament. So some of you, this will be your favorite sermon ever. And some of you are like, that was awful. All right. But, but it's important for us to understand the story the Jewish scriptures are painting because we cannot fully understand Jesus unless we understand the story of Israel. Now, to make this easier, um, I've split this up into four different scenes that we are going to encounter along the way. But before we even get to the first scene, we start with the prologue. And actually, a good way to think about Scripture, Genesis chapters 1 through 11 is almost the prologue because really the action starts in Genesis chapter 12. So let me summarize the first 11 chapters of Genesis. So you got, we've heard, you know, God created uh, all of the world to be his temple. But Adam and Eve, 
They, they didn't image God. They imaged the serpent instead. And so they're forced to leave the Garden of Eden. By the way, here's bonus points. Anybody know what direction they move when they leave the Garden of Eden? They leave and they head east, which is interesting because they have kids. And one of their sons, Cain, kills another son, Abel. So we go from imaging something else into the world to now murder because Cain is imaging his bitterness and his frustration, his own uh, sense of rejection by God, and he kills his own brother. And when Cain leaves town, you know what direction he had, heads? East. And actually, a fascinating study, if you ever go through Genesis 1 through 11, people keep moving further and further east. There's a descendant of Cain named Lamech. He kills a young man, says if what Cain did is bad, what I've done is even worse. I mean, things get so bad, you get to the point where Scripture literally says, God regretted creating humanity. Because left to their own devices, did people drift towards God's design or away from God's design? See, I think that's so important to note that in our lives, you will never drift towards godliness. You're never going to accidentally bump into his plan for your life. And we even get to the point where God decides he's going to like wipe the slate clean and start over with a man named Noah, the only righteous man. And so Noah builds the ark, and then the rain came down, and the waters came up. Any other VBS kids remember that song? A few of us here today. Well, when the waters finally recede, and Noah gets off the ark, first thing he does is he makes a sacrifice and worships God. Second thing he does, he gets drunk and passes out naked in his tent, and his son wants to see his dad naked, and so he comes into the tent to look at his dad. And so you're going to wipe the slate clean. We're going to start over. Noah is going to image me into the world. And instead of being filled with the spirit, he's filled with spirits and gets drunk. And instead of his son trusting in God, his son allows his his sexual um, desires to be what he images into the world. And the story of the first 11 chapters is left to our own devices. We always drift away from God. By the way, That's why we talk about the spiritual practices here at Bridgepoint so much, because I really believe if we're going to look like Jesus, there's two things that need to happen. We have to have Jesus, right? We have to have him and his spirit guiding the process. But you know what we also have to have? We have to cooperate with that. Jesus, when he encounters the religious leaders of his day, he says, you have rejected God's purpose for your life. You know, you can reject God's purpose for your life. And so when we talk about doing things like like silence and solitude and fasting and prayer and scripture and worship and confession, all of those things, all they do is create an environment where God can begin to transform us to make us more like Jesus. That's why that is so important. But here in, in the prologue, we see things get worse and worse and worse. So what's God going to do? That's where we get to scene one, which I'm calling the promise. That's what we're going to pick up in Genesis chapter 12, starting in verse 1. The Lord said to Abram, go out from your land, your relatives, and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you, I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt, and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So in Genesis chapter 12, God comes to a man named Abram. And God says, listen, I I know humanity's gone all this way, but guess what? I'm starting my, my renewal project with you, Abram. 
And if you will trust me and you will follow me to a land I'm going to show you, then I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make your name great. And the whole world is going to be blessed through you. And I've heard this passage taught so many times. And a lot of times we want to jump to the blessing part, right? Like, I'm going to bless you and make your name great. And you're going to be a blessing. And all of that is great. But don't forget what happened before the blessing. God said, I want you to leave your family behind. I want you to leave your land behind. I want you to leave your inheritance. Everything you've ever known, leave it behind. And go to the land that I will show you. He doesn't say, leave all that behind and here's where I'm going to take you. He says, leave all that behind. Trust me. Follow me step by step, day by day. And eventually I'm going to get you somewhere good and I will bless you. But I want you to put your faith in me. By the way, a lot of times in our life, we want God's purpose for our life. We, we want his blessing in our life. And man, I think so many of us, we would be willing to quit our jobs and to sell our house and to move across the country. We'd be willing to do all that if we knew where we were going. But do you trust God enough to leave all of that behind and just follow him step by step? Well, what if God is your plan B? What if there is no backup plan? That's the kind of faith that God was looking for in Abram, and that's exactly what he does. Now, over the next couple of chapters, we learn some more about Abram. But when we get to chapter 15, he's getting kind of um, up there in his years, and he starts to talk to God and say, hey, God, I, I don't know what you're doing, but I don't have a kid to pass on this blessing. Like, I don't have anyone to carry on my name. You said you're going to use me to bless the world, but I don't even have any kids. And by the way, when I say Abram was getting up in years, I don't mean late 30s, early 40s, right? I'm talking like he has his AARP card, okay? He's, he's getting up there in years. Biologically, he's not even sure, am I going to be able to have kids? And in the course of this conversation, we get God making him a promise. Genesis chapter 15, starting in verse 5, says, He took him outside and said, look at the sky and count the stars, if you're able to count them. And then he said to him, your offspring will be that numerous. And Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. So God takes Abram outside. He says, Abram, I want you to trust me. Look at the stars in the sky. Count them if you can even count all of them and know that that's how many descendants you're going to have. And Abram believes. That's pretty incredible. Like even though he's, he's up there in age, he believes. It's credited to him as righteousness. But then here to me is like the funny part of the story. Verse 7, he also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, Lord God, how can I know that I will possess it? So this is why it's funny to me. Abram says, I'm old. How am I going to have kids? Like biologically, I don't even know if this thing's going to work. And then all of a sudden God says, I'm going to give you more descendants than stars in the sky. And Abram believes that. And God says, but not only that, but I'm going to give you land. And Abram says, whoa, God, I don't know if I can believe that. You know, to me, the land part seems like the easy part for God. But, but all these, like, how can I trust that this is going to happen? And so God tells him this in verse 9. He says, bring me a three-year-old cow, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon, and a partridge in a pear tree. So he brought all these to him, cut them in half, and laid the pieces opposite each other, but he did not cut the birds in half. Birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. And as the sun was setting, don't miss this, a deep sleep came over Abram, 
and suddenly great terror and darkness descended on him. So remember, Abram's asking the question, God, how do I know that you're going to be faithful to what you're telling me? And God says, all right, go get some animals. And he doesn't tell Abram what to do. Abram just knows. He cuts the animals in half, like what on earth is going on? Well, for us, we, need, we, we don't understand what's going on, but the, the original audience knew exactly what was happening here because God was entering into a covenant with Abram. And a covenant is more than a contract. It's a relationship that both sides are committing themselves to until somebody dies. And so the way you would do this, the, the phrase wasn't make a covenant, it was cut a covenant. This is even where we get our phrase, we're going to cut a deal together. Because you would take animals, you would cut them in half, you would pull them apart. So there's this like bloody pathway. And then both parties would walk down this bloody pathway and pass each other. And it was symbolizing saying that if I don't keep my end of this relationship, then let me be like these animals. Like talk about till death do us part. It's like, I'm keeping my end of the bargain no matter what, and this covenant remains in effect until one of us dies. Are we tracking so far? But what happens to Abram before he can pass through? Do you remember? He fell asleep. And what it says in the following verses, while he's asleep, he has a vision of a smoking pot and a flaming torch. These are two uh, pictures of the divine that pass through on either side of the pathway And the point that God is making is, listen, Abram, I'm passing through for the both of us. That Abram, even when you don't have faith, I'll remain faithful. Even when you don't uphold your end of the bargain, I will uphold both ends of the bargain. That's how you know you can trust me. And this covenant is going to remain in effect until I die. And we all know that God doesn't die, right? Now, you would think leaving that moment that Abram would be filled with faith. Because God has just made a covenant and said, even if you don't do what you're supposed to do, I'm going to be faithful. But in the very next chapter, Abram and his wife still don't understand how they're going to have kids at their age. And so they devise a plan where where Abram's going to sleep with his servant Hagar, and she does get pregnant, and that causes a whole bunch of issues, which is a different sermon for a different time. But God has to immediately come back and say, I just told you to trust me. Like, know that I've got this. But listen, even though you tried to do this on your own, I'm still going to be faithful to my covenant. But as a result, he wanted Abraham to do something to remind him of God's faithfulness. And this is in Genesis chapter 17, starting in verse 9. God says this to Abraham. As for you and your offspring after you, throughout their generations are to keep my covenant. This is my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you, which you are to keep. Every one of your males must be circumcised. You must circumcise the flesh of your foreskin to serve as a sign of the covenant between me and you. How many of you thought we were going to talk about circumcision and foreskin when you woke up this morning? This is not the, the verse that, you know, every basic white girl posts with her coffee from the coffee shop. In fact, as your pastor, you would bless me this Pastor's Appreciation Month if you would highlight this verse in your Bible. And tomorrow during your devotional time, without comment, just take a picture and post it and be like, the Lord is speaking to me today. That would bless me so much. So people would look at you like, what on earth? It's like, why? Why, why, why is, is circumcision so important? Well, remember, at this point, Abraham is 99 years old, and he has yet to have any children. 
And God's already told him, I'm going to be faithful to you. But now I want you to do something that will serve as a reminder of my faithfulness. I want you to take the very means of reproduction, and I want you to do something so that you remember that all your hope for the future is tied up in me and not in you. See, it's an outward symbol of an inward trust in God that he is going to be faithful, that, that Abraham and his descendants, it's not up to them, it's up to God. And so this outward symbol of an inward hope for the future that is placed in God to be faithful to his covenant. Does that make sense? Now, I want you to store that in the back of your mind because we are going to return to that at some point. That's all scene one, which is a promise. Now, the next few scenes, we move a little bit quicker. Some of you are like, we're only in Genesis 17, and he's got to go through the whole... Th- Listen, I'm going to get us to the Mexican restaurant on time. You ain't got to worry about that. All right, now the next scene is one we're going to call the priests. By the way, good pastor, right? We had the prologue. We had the promise. We have the priest. They all start with the same letter. That's why you go to seminary, just so you can come up with all the points, have the same letter. Now, after the the rest of Genesis, it's all about how Abraham does have descendants that become so numerous. So by the time the book of Exodus picks up, there's millions of them living in Egypt. The leadership in Egypt is afraid that the Jewish people might revolt and try to overthrow them. So the Egyptians enslave the Jewish people. Now, for 400 years, they're enslaved. And they've heard the stories about how God made these promises. And they're even, like, the boys get circumcised. There's an outward reminder of this promise that God is going to bless them and make them a mighty nation and bless the world through them. But, man, it's hard to feel blessed when you're a slave. It's hard to feel like you're going to bless the world when you're living under another nation's boot. And so they cry out to God to do something. So he sends a man named Moses. Moses delivers his people from bondage, and he delivers them to freedom. And one of the first places they go is a mountain called Sinai. And on this mountain, God renews his covenant. So he renews his vows to his people. That's what we're going to pick up in Exodus chapter 19, starting in verse 3. It says, Moses went up the mountain to God. And the Lord called to him from the mountain. This is what you must say to the house of Jacob and explain to the Israelites. You have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you will carefully listen to me and keep my covenant, you will be my own possession out of all the peoples, although the whole earth is mine, and you will be my kingdom of priests and my holy nation. These are the words you are to say to the Israelites. So God calls his people to himself. He's renewing his vows. He says, guys, if you'll keep my covenant, if you'll remain faithful to me, then guess what? Even though I'm the God of the whole world, you're going to be my special people. And you know, you're going to be my holy nation. By the way, sometimes I think we think holy means pure, but that's not what it means. Holy just means set apart for a special purpose. So you talked about before in my house, like our china dishes, those are set apart for a special purpose. I don't get to, to use those when we're eating barbecue and watching college football, right? That's only like, like for important, important days. In the same way, God is saying, listen, you're supposed to be set apart from the rest of the world. You're not going to look like other people. You're not going to look like other nations. You're going to be set apart. And in fact, the whole kingdom is going to be a kingdom of what? Priests. Now, where else have we talked about priests? In Genesis chapter 1 and 2, 
So what God is saying, listen, Adam and Eve were supposed to be priests, but now I want a whole nation of priests. In fact, I want you to be so different that when the world looks at you, they understand who I am and what I look like. When the world looks at Israel, I want them to see heaven on earth. And so that's why when we look at the Old Testament and there's laws and we think, man, isn't that so weird? Why why can't you mix fabrics together? There were some laws that were just supposed to set them apart and distinguish them from other nations. But then there were some laws that were designed to show the world what heaven on earth looks like. And in fact, in the very next chapter, we get the Ten Commandments. I know it's so easy sometimes to be like, man, the Ten Commandments, all these laws, like doesn't that seem so oppressive? Like, who would ever want to worship a God that has that many laws and regulations? But no, no, no. The Jewish people never looked at the law as something oppressive. They always looked at it as a blessing. Think about this. One of the Ten Commandments is honor the Sabbath and keep it holy. So, so once every seven days, stop working, rest, and enjoy God's creation. Now, remember, they just came out of slavery. Do you know what you don't get when you're a slave? You don't get PTO, right? You don't get time off. You don't get three-day weekends and holiday pay and overtime. I don't know, but now, now once a week, you stop, you rest, and you enjoy creation. And then once every seven years, take a whole year off and throw a party and celebrate and rest and enjoy. And once every seven cycles of seven years, take a year or two off. And then during that time, guess what? We're going to forgive all debt. All slaves go free. Land goes back to its original owner. I mean, it's a joy. It's a celebration. These are wonderful things. It would be like if, if I told you, man, it's really oppressive to, to follow God as a Christian, right? Because you guys know in a few weeks, I have to listen to that dumb Christmas music again, and, and you just have to suffer through Christmas movies, and I don't really want to, but I guess I'll eat all the Christmas cookies, and I guess I'll buy gifts and receive them. I guess I'll spend time with family. Like, listen, some of you approach it that way because you're dead inside, all right? But most of us, when we think about Christmas, we don't dread it. We look forward to it. We cannot wait for the elf to return. We cannot wait to sit around with family and decorate and look at lights. And we enjoy the season. And if we enjoy it that much, imagine how much God's people looked at the law as a blessing. But see, that brings us to scene three, because there's actually a problem And the problem, by the way, is not with the law. The law is good, and it is a blessing. The problem is with people. Because I don't know if any of you have kids or just been around a kid before. If you give them a rule, what do they do? Well, you say they break it, but they try to do everything but break it, right? And they get real creative. Like, every two-year-old is the best lawyer you've ever heard before. They'll argue a point with you, like, all day long. Like, if I tell my kids, do not cross the street, you know what they're going to do? They're going to play in the middle of the street, I say, well, dad, we did not cross the street. And I'll say, all right, don't go in the street. You know what they're going to do? Go right up to the edge of where the street is. If I say, don't get anywhere near the street, then they're going to climb on the roof of the house, right? Like as a parent, your job until they're 18 is just to make sure they don't kill themselves. And at 18, they're on their own, right? You're like, good luck out in the world. But the same thing was true in Scripture. There are 613 uh, commands in the the Jewish Scriptures, but they don't just give them all at once. See, actually, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, first five books of the Bible, is known as the Torah. Translated, that means the law. But the law was not just given in a textbook. Here's how it would happen. 
there'd be a mistake. So there's more laws given. A rebellion, more laws given. So Moses, up on the mountain, gets these commands, writes them on stone tablets. He comes down and he finds that all the people, while he's been gone, have uh, melted all their gold and built a calf and are worshiping this calf. Moses gets so mad, he throws the stone tablets on the ground, they break. So now he has to go back up the mountain, ask God to forgive the people. And God's like, all right, get some more stones. We're going to start over and do this again. And right after that story, then you get all the laws about not worshiping other idols. Then you get to the book of Leviticus with Nadab and Abihu. By the way, I'm not having any more kids. So if you're pregnant and looking for names, Nadab and Abihu, great choices. But they were these priests who go in to make a sacrifice to God. And we don't know exactly what it is. It just said they made some kind of strange offering and they die. And so right after this, you get all the rules about how priests are supposed to be pure and not defile themselves and get drunk and all this other stuff. In the book of Numbers, there's a story where God tells his people, it's not time to go on the promised land. Do not attack right now. It's not going to end well. And so the, the people interpret that as now is the best time to attack. And so they go in, they get slaughtered. And so right after that is all the rules about sacrifices, dedicating yourself back to God, making sure you're listening to him and no one else. And so you get all that, the, the, the first section, the law, is just people mess up, more laws, people mess up, more laws. And the problem that we see is that even though the law is good, it is not enough to change us. You can have all the rules in the world, but it doesn't actually set us free from imaging other things. It doesn't set us free from sin, which brings us to scene four, which is the prophets. By the way, the way the Jewish scriptures are set up, it's called the Tanakh. So the first five books, the T is for Torah. The, the middle section, the Tana, the N is the Nevaim. So this is like, they call it the prophets, but it's really like First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, Jeremiah, Isaiah, all the major prophets, all the minor prophets. And then the last part, the, the, the K in Tanakh is the Ketuvim. This is the writing. So it's like Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. So you have the law. The next section is the prophets. And what the prophets tell us is that something has to change. And by the way, nothing changes for Israel they continue to move further and further from God's design. God says, I'm not going to force myself on you. He removes his protection. The Jewish people are defeated by their enemies. And it's as if God's kingdom is gone. Heaven and earth no longer overlap. God has left the building. And so the, the Old Testament, the Jewish people are then wrestling with, wait a second, has God given up on this project? And even if he hasn't, is there any hope? Aren't we just going to be going through this same cycle over and over and over again. But the prophets then look forward to a future hope. And I don't have time to read the verses. You can look them up on your own. Jeremiah chapter 4, he says, we need a circumcision of the heart. We need to cut the flesh part out of our heart. That, that right now, circumcision is an outward sign, but what we really need is an inward change. In Jeremiah 31, he says, we need a new covenant that's not written on stone tablets like the one Moses broke and had to rewrite, but one that's written on our heart. We need an inward change. Ezekiel 36 says, we need to replace our heart of stone with a heart of flesh. We need a heart transplant that the prophets keep looking forward to today. Listen, the law is not bad, but it's not enough. We don't need laws. We need someone to change us from the inside out. And they look forward to a day when there would be a leader who would come who would reestablish God's kingdom on earth 
And he would do that by bringing about an inward transformation. That dry bones would come back to life. This is the hope that the Jewish scriptures end with. That's a lot to take in, I know. Somebody after last service said, you talked really fast today. I was like, I had a lot to get through and not a lot of time to do it. Now, I do want to go ahead, and if you have a question, you can go ahead and raise your hand. But while we're waiting for that, if we get a text-in question, we can go ahead and throw that up. If in the Old Testament, the Israelites were supposed to be priests, how do the priests show up in the New Testament? Uh, This is so good. So I have one of two ways I can go. I can tell you to wait and come back in two weeks, but I'll give you a little bit of sneak peek. Who are supposed to be priests? It's God's people. And this same verse we just read about being a holy nation and a royal priesthood, Peter uses it in the New Testament. And he says, that's God's people now. Like the church is the kingdom of God, right? That the church is supposed to be priests. I don't mean Bridgepoint Church. People who follow God, we are priests in the world today. And what does a priest do? A priest works on behalf of God to expand the goodness and his glory into the world. A priest is making sure that that all of creation is flourishing. But this is so important because if the Bible is just about going to heaven when you die, then why should we feed people who are hungry, clothe people who are naked, visit people in prison? Because that doesn't help you get to heaven, right? Except that when Jesus talks about judgment, what does he say? He says, you didn't feed me when I was hungry. You didn't clothe me when I was naked. You didn't give me something to drink when I was thirsty. You didn't visit me when I was in prison. To see, to be a priest in the world means that we actually work for the good of the world. And yes, the only way to one day heaven is coming to earth and the temple and earth will be all here together. And the priests are the ones who get to enjoy new creation. And so the invitation of Jesus is I've made a way for you to truly be free from all these other things you're imaging so that you can be the image of God, so you can be the priest and enjoy new creation? Fantastic question. All right, do you have any other questions in the room? Just raise your hand. If not, I'm sure you'll talk to me in the lobby today. That'll be fine. All right, every week I'm giving you a couple recommended resources. Let's go ahead and throw those up. First one is called The Drama of Scripture. By the way, the reason I give you these resources, I do not want you to think that I am like smart and have this special revelation from God. When you're a pastor, um, novelty is heresy, right? Like if I come up with something new on my own, that's probably not a good thing. So I'm just channeling people who are smarter than me. I'm channeling a long line of Christian history and tradition that I think has been lost for a lot of us today. The book, The Drama of Scripture by Craig Bartholomew and and Michael Goheen, fantastic book. It's a long book, okay? And by long, I mean it's over 300 pages. But it is easily accessible. The vast majority of that book is taking you through the Old Testament stuff. And does a beautiful job. And by the way, this is a great um, book just for you to keep on hand because if you're going to read through the Old Testament, it will break it up into sections. It'll give you some of the context behind it as well. Cannot recommend that book enough. And then every week I've been giving you a Bible project video to watch. Um, So this week, watch the one on the law. And they do the spoiler alert where they get into Jesus. And, And for the sake of this series, I'm waiting until next week before we get to that act in the story. It's a great, I think it's six minutes beautiful video. Highly encourage you to check that out. Now, question is, Matt, that's well and good. You got a seminary education today. 
But what on earth does this mean for me practically? Listen, I think that the story that we find in the Jewish scriptures is so important and relevant for us today. Because the problem that Israel kept running into is that instead of looking like heaven on earth, instead of being holy and set apart, they wanted to look like every other nation. God said, I don't want you to have a king. I want you to trust me. And they said, God, would you give us a king instead? God says, don't build up a massive military. Trust me to be your defender and protector. But they looked around at the other nations with their big military and said, I'd like one of those too. And so they built it up. God said, don't store up wealth for yourself. Trust me to be your provider. They decided, you know what? All these other nations have all these reserves. We're going to build up these reserves for ourselves. They were supposed to be separate and ended up looking like just every other nation. And I think that for many of us in our lives, at least for me, let me speak for myself. There are areas of my life that haven't been set apart as holy yet. There are areas of my life that still look like the world. And so in just a moment, we're going to have a time of communion. And as we do, there's two questions I want you to wrestle with. The first one is this, in what ways is my life still worldly? Notice I was trying to come up with a different phrase than that, but I think it's just like so good. Like what, what ways does my life look just like the rest of the world? Another way to think about this, if you didn't follow Jesus, how would your life look any different other than the fact that you might be at brunch right now instead of in this room? If you weren't following Jesus, would you approach your finances any differently? Would you approach the things you choose to buy and own any differently? Would you approach your marriage and your parenting any differently? Would you approach your career? your thoughts? Or my fear is that many of us come to church, we still look just like everybody else. Listen, I think if we ask God that question, he'll be faithful. He'll put his finger on something today that we need to surrender to him. Second question I want us to wrestle with, what can I do to cultivate a spirit-filled life? Because here's the thing, the Old Testament ends like, hey, we need this inward transformation. What we really need, what we need is God to live inside of us. The question is, how could that happen? Man, I'm thankful that because of Jesus, that when we follow him, he gives us his spirit. His spirit brings about transformation. See, Jesus isn't here just to, to get you to follow rules and to be a good moral person. He's trying to set you free to be the person he created you to be, to image God into the world. But we can only do that when we live our life empowered by the Holy Spirit. And so how can you do that? Maybe for you, it's, I know I need to be praying more. Maybe for you, it's, I need to be fasting once a week. Maybe for you, it's I need to be confessing my sins to somebody because, man, I just cannot seem to get free. Whatever it is, are there things in our life, are there practices to put in place that will help us cultivate that kind of spirit-filled life? And in our time with Jesus, as we ask these questions, I believe he'll answer them. And if we're faithful to make those changes and to partner with him, I believe that people will start to look at us as people who are living like heaven has come to earth. We truly then will be the light to the world. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes with me? Jesus, we're so thankful that you made a way to bring about that transformation, that you aren't asking us to white knuckle it or just follow a bunch of rules and regulations, but that God, 
you have made a way for us to live a spirit-filled life. And so I pray right now all across this room that as we sit with you, you would show us the areas of our life that, that we haven't surrendered to you that still look like the rest of the world. And I pray you would give us the boldness and the strength to release that to you. And as we do, God, I pray that you would grow our faith. You would increase our dependence on you. I pray for anything we need to do or anything we need to stop doing to live that spirit-filled life, that you would just speak that to us now, Jesus. Because at the end of the day, we just want to be more like you. It's in your name I pray. Amen. You can take communion as you feel led. Thanks for listening to the Bridgepoint Church Podcast. I hope we've shared something meaningful for you wherever you're at in your spiritual journey. Just so you know a little bit more about us, we meet on Sunday mornings in downtown Woodstock, but we also meet during the week in what we call life groups, and that's where the really good stuff happens for us. If you're becoming a regular listener of this podcast, we'd like to invite you to make it relational, just like we do during the week. Grab a Bible, invite some friends to join you, and turn this into a conversation. If you're already a regular listener and would like to support this ministry financially, you can do so by visiting us online at bpc.life and choosing the giving option that works best for you. Thanks again for listening.